The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. You know, good parents train their children to share and to not give in to boasting. And sharing is something that does not come naturally to very many people. Uh, those who are virtuously endowed are rare. And uh, most of us need discipline. We discipline to share toys and food and the affection of others. And most of us learn not to boast, at least not to boast too often, usually by the hard and difficult lessons of life. So there are some that never seem to get it. There are many things that we must share in life, and there are very few things that we ought to boast in. But there are some things that ought not to be shared. And there is ultimately one great boast in all of creation— And I believe Daniel 11 helps us understand what these are. I begin reading in verse 36 to the end. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is God's marvelous and mysterious word. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God and Father, these are obscure things, and your Spirit gives wisdom and insight to the difficult things, and we interpret the hard things in light of the clear things. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight this night into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A good man will be generous with his time, his money, his talents. He will share his resources and the blessings that God has given him. He will be a giver and not a taker, a blessing rather than a curse. But there are some things that a godly man will not share. He will not share that which is most precious to him. Among such things would be his wife, the one with whom he enjoys intimate fellowship, the one whose most intimate fellowship belongs to him alone. In fact, to share her with another would be an abomination in the sight of God, and anyone who seeks to steal it is worthy of death. God is the most gracious and generous of givers who shares his love and his grace to a lost, needy, and despairing world. There is no one who can outgive God or accuse him of being stingy with his blessings. But there is one thing that God refuses to share. He will give his glory to no other. It belongs to him alone. See, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy a a beautiful and awesome glory, which they will show and reveal to the redeemed, yet they will not yield it to any mere creature. And any who would seek to steal that glory is worse than a robber. I believe our text, when set alongside other scriptures, demonstrates that there are two kinds of people in this fallen world. Those who ultimately glory in themselves or other things, and those who will ultimately glory in God. And those who would glory in the Lord our God will glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 36 introduces the problem of this king who will exalt and magnify himself. And before we confront the obvious problem of those words, we first must address to whom this text is referring. The prior context is clearly referring to Antiochus IV, otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes, the ruler of the Seleucid Syrian kingdom in the middle of the second century. He is described in chapter 8 of Daniel and described in, at length in chapter 11 as well. He is called the contemptible one, the, the one who commits the abomination uh, that causes desolation, the one who slaughtered tens of thousands of faithful Jews in his campaign to crush the faithful worship of God, who committed abominations against God in his holy temple. But commentators tell us there are several reasons why we conclude that verses 36 and following are not referring to this notorious, wicked, historical figure. And the first is that at the end of verse 35, it refers to this phrase, until the time of the end, which many believe is referring to the end of the persecution that Antiochus will 
impose upon the Jewish people, which ended uh, when he, his campaign was overturned and then his untimely death in 164 B.C. Verse 36 and beyond seems to go beyond the scope of Antiochus's life. Now, in fact, there, the descriptive language, especially in verses 36 to 39 and on into 40 through 45, there, there is language here that parallels. It's similar with the life of Antiochus, but ultimately goes well beyond the scope of this man's evil doing. Yes, Antiochus was able to do as he pleased for a time, but then his power was checked by the rising Roman Empire. He was a man who claimed divinity, but so did many other foolish rulers of antiquity. And he indeed abandoned the god of his forefathers, the god Apollo, and this obscure reference to the one loved by women is likely referring to Dionysus or Tammuz, who was mourned by Ishtar in the Egyptian pantheon. And so Antiochus did turn his back on the traditional gods in favor of Zeus to bolster his military might. And we also know that Antiochus dies uh, in a minor campaign while fighting Persia. And the description of his ending in verses 40 through 45 does not match. One commentator sums it up when he says, while aspects of the language of Daniel 11, 36 to 39, seem to fit Antiochus, the passage as a whole seems to be speaking of a king who will be a larger and a more ultimate version of him. And so I would side with many commentators who see Antiochus as, as a model, as a paradigm, a framework of understanding the great rebel against God the ultimate oppressor of God's people. And so for that reason, some commentators refer to this passage, this figure as the Antichrist, who is referred to more specifically in the New Testament. And so this text, we would say, has a kind of double fulfillment. In some part, it was fulfilled in the second century B.C. And yet its ultimate fulfillment remains yet to come. And we see this even in Jesus' own words. In Matthew 24, he, in his prophecy of the end, he refers both to the end and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but also to the ultimate end, of which the destruction of Jerusalem was a type of anticipating the great judgment to come. And so we take from this passage an anticipation that, that history as we know it, will conclude with the coming of an Antiochus-like king. But as we think about this figure, there's important lessons. And that the, the folly of the Antichrist and this Antiochus-like king is instructive for believers to not glory in self, but glory alone in the one true God, glorying ultimately in the cross of Christ. For see, glory in self is guilty of, of t- the twin sins of vanity and blasphemy. 
It says in the opening passage that the king will do his will, whatever he wills, and he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Verse 37 says that he pays no attention to the gods because he is above them all. This king is right to conclude that the gods of the people are no mere gods at all. But he vainly assumes to take their place. This man has a Herculean ego of titanic proportions. He is self-centered to the extreme. Recently, I've been reading a book, a book entitled, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men by a, a secular counselor named Lundy Bancroft. It was, the book was given to me by a woman who left an abusive marriage. And this secular non-Christian author has amazing insights into the nature and character of abusive men. He profiles men who abuse women physically and verbally, and these men have a tendency to win over women by their charm and by the giving of gifts and their flatteries, and they manage to gain the approval in public with their good guy image. But in their heart of hearts, these men are obsessed with controlling women, children, other people's perceptions of them, and maintain a strong entitlement mentality. Their character is is revealed through excusing unacceptable behavior by refusing to respect the woman that he has claimed. Such men are guilty of manipulation of lying, cheating, and justifying their acts and their selfishness. An abusive man always needs to have his needs fulfilled first. Imposing himself upon a woman to such an extent that she is consumed with him out of fear, how to please him and stay in his good graces. As a Christian community, we must learn not to tolerate behavior among men and support women who need separation from such men. The problem of abusive men is ultimately one of vainglory. And whether we're talking about dictators of great nations or bosses of a company or a union or a party boss or an abusive husband, Vainglory is at the heart of every fallen human creature. And I'm convinced that people in such positions of power really don't have any monopoly on these tendencies. Each of our hearts have the seeds of vanity and self-glory. You and I can be guilty of merely appearing to serve God for their praise and the approval to look good before others. To give of ourselves only to get what we want in return. We grow resentful when our vanity is not satisfied by the praise and the approval of others. The Christian must be weary. Weary of the lurking sin of proud vainglory that swells within our fallen hearts when we neglect the one alone who can satisfy and fill our hearts with the all-consuming glory of Christ. 
we see in this Antichrist figure the same vanity that we all possess as well as a problem of blasphemy. It says that not only will this king magnify himself, but he will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He is vain to elevate himself above the gods, and yet he's also arrogant to demote God down off his throne. This man is a mocker, a reviler. You know, atheists long ago and even today accuse God of being a tyrant, of being an egomaniac, of being vainglorious in himself, and no better than an abusive husband or a ruthless dictator. Remember Jesus' parable of the talents. Remember the third guy who hid his talent in the ground because he was afraid, blaming and accusing the king for being a hard man. Yes, the God of the Bible does require absolute allegiance for his followers and worshipers to renounce worldly loyalties. Jesus told his disciples to forsake wealth and their families and to make him their one and only. Jesus says, whoever does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I will respond to the charge of the atheist later. I will come back to it. But I first want to consider this astonishment, this self-consumed king who says astonishing things about God. But what I find astonishing is that this king is allowed to prosper for a time. You know, a, a boss or somebody in authority position gives responsibility to someone under him or her and gives that responsibility on the assumption of trust. He or she will expect uh, honorable work and, and respect for his or her authority. And uh, the person in authority requires loyalty. It will not tolerate insubordination. And isn't it astonishing that God gives authority to mere men, most of whom refuse to honor him. No sooner do men gain positions of authority and power that they abuse it and exalt themselves above their subjects. You know, if you were the head of a company or on the, on the board of a church or an organization and someone was serving under you who repeatedly disrespected you and said vile things about you and your board, would you do nothing about it? And yet, God long suffers the many vain and blasphemous men and women of authority in this world. And each act of defiance is moving towards one great final act of vain and blasphemous rebellion. But notice what the text says. It says that this king's success merely serves God's purposes till the indignation is accomplished. That means until the purposes of God's wrath and judgment are complete, for what is decreed shall be done. God is sovereign. 
He is on his throne, even in a world filled with vain and blasphemous wicked people. You know, Muslim states oftentimes have blasphemy laws, and uh, those who convert from Christianity, uh, from Islam to Christianity, may suffer punishment of death. We are grateful to live in a free country. But with that freedom also comes many abuses by the ignorant who are blasphemous. We face blasphemy all around us. From the mouths of people around us, in the workplace, in public, on the screen. And you and I as believers live in a world filled with vanity and blasphemy. And I believe that you and I can be guilty of some of the thing, same of the same things if we are not careful. Whenever we insist upon our own way, when we are seeking the praise of others, when we live for the approval of others, when we join others in saying foolish and cynical things about God or others merely to get approval. But I believe we also need to guard our attitude towards those who commit vanity and blasphemy. Yes, Christian, grieve and mourn over the great excess of blasphemy all around us. Yes, be jealous for God's holy name that is blasphemed on the radio stations and on the TV screen. We must be jealous for God's holy name. And yet we must be guarded against bitterness and anger in self-righteousness and judgmentalism. I believe that one of the most grievous sins of the conservative, Bible-believing church in America is a sin of proud self-righteousness and an angry judgmentalism. And I believe that our attitudes, the words we choose, communicate much to other people. You know, Paul rebukes his own people in Romans 2. He rebukes them for the way they boast. He rebukes them for their proud self-righteousness. He paraphrases passages from Isaiah and Ezekiel when he says that, that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The church can provoke the pagans to blasphemy when we are not living faithfully when we are not humble and contrite, when we are not living for the praise of God's glorious grace. So let us learn to respond to a, a culture going debauched with gracious humility, show pity, and to learn to live for God's glory. You know, Proverbs 19.11 says that it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. If God can overlook the offenses of many for a time. Shall not we bear that cross with our Lord until his judgment comes according to his wisdom and his timing? Well, how do we turn away from self-glory? Well, the only way is by turning away from vanity and blasphemy of self-glory by committing ourselves to uphold the glory of of God. I would like to respond to the charge of the atheist with the, the astonishing things that are said about our great God. Is the God of the Bible truly an egomaniac? 
Is he merely a tyrannical dictator? Does he just raise up and tear down willy-nilly, commanding the slaughter of the pagans in the Old Testament? This God who demands sacrifice and worship, is he really no different from all the other gods of antiquity? I offer to you Isaiah's response in chapter 48, where the Lord says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. You know, people with big egos need strokes. They need assurances from themselves and from others that they are something great, that they are still in charge. My wife might notice that in Major League Baseball's television promo leading up to the All-Star Game had this rap song that was repeating the phrase, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Do you remember that? These multi-million dollar stars needing reassurance that they're the man. This has not revealed the vanity and the emptiness of self-glory. Those consumed with their own glory only think of themselves. It will only satisfy the needs of others if it benefits them. They have a paranoid obsession to hold on, to cling to power like King Saul. Always afraid of something slipping out from his clutches. These kinds fail to give, fail to trust, and will never make a true sacrifice. In contrast, the true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of all glory, first, due to the greatness of his power in creation. Second, by the goodness of his mercy upon his people, he is worthy above all gods because he is the only God, the first and the last, as Isaiah tells us. And he is worthy of glory because he is worthy of our worship. Yes, God does desire. He desires that you and I think about him and serve him and aim to please him day in and day out. Because his glory and our good is the greatest glory and the greatest good in all of creation. There is no greater glory than God himself, and there is no greater good than living for the praise of God's glorious grace. Unlike an abusive husband or a tyrannical dictator, God does not use people. And God does not force himself upon people. People are given an invitation. They are free to come. When Jesus went about his ministry. He went to those who called upon him to come and heal, to come and teach, to come and save. His desire for glory 
is not rooted in insecurity or anything lacking in himself. Our God has nothing to prove to himself or to anybody else. Our God is not clinging to his power and his privilege. Jesus gave up power. He relinquished privilege. And our great God does not demand attention, does not insist upon adoration, but is freely offered by those who have benefited from his redeeming grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last paragraph of our chapter in verses 40 through 45 describe this final struggle among the kings of earth, a battle of wills unto death. And in it, this this antichrist, Antioch-like figure finds success for a time, but in the end, he is cut short. He is brought in with no one to help him. And I believe that Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 summarizes well where history is driving towards just encapsulating all these obscure prophetical messages from the Old Testament when he describes this grand final vision. He says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Martin Luther said it well in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, referring to the great enemy of God's people. One little word will fail him. A mere whisper. And evil is gone forever. Tyrants, Dictators, whether they dwell in our homes, in our offices, in our churches, in our public offices, as head of nations, and even the final Antichrist himself, are consumed with themselves at others' expense. They claw to the top, they cling to power, they retaliate against anybody who would dare threaten their claims upon authority. In great contrast... The true King of kings and Lord of lords came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. His was not a grasping for power, yet one of freely giving it away. The Lord Jesus entered into the valley of the shadow of death, enduring the worst humiliations of wicked men, that he might be exalted and magnified by God his Father. Paul says it well in Philippians 2. He who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. That is true glory. We see the glory of God revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But friend, you and I must choose which glory we want. The choice of bowing now in humble submission 
before Jesus Christ or bowing by force on that great and dreadful day of God's almighty wrath upon all the vain, vainglorious of those who will be cast into eternal darkness and unquenchable fire. C.S. Lewis says it well when he describes heaven as a place where people say to God, Thy will be done. Hell is a place where God says to the people, Thy will be done. A few weeks ago, our Little League Baseball district uh, saw one of our players kicked off a tournament team. This young boy had repeatedly boasted and exercised poor sportsmanship, and his manager warned him repeatedly. And uh, when those warnings went unheeded, he enforced his rule and removed the player from the team, even though it hurt the team's chances to advance in an important tournament. Sadly, the apple did not fall very far from the tree, as this little boy had a father who was known for much vanity, much boasting, and poor sportsmanship. Jesus bore the likeness of his Father, one not of vainglory, one not of selfishness, one not of boasting in self, but one coming in a witness to grace and truth. His was a ministry characterized by humility, service, and an unwavering commitment to his Father's glory. The greatest good and the most worthy of worship, he invites you and I to follow in his likeness. You know, my heart is not all that dissimilar from the father of this boy removed from his team, who sadly has not learned to refrain his tongue to reveal the unhealthy and unholy attitudes of his heart. You and I are tempted with vain things, with blasphemies even, of boasting in and of ourselves. We can glory in our own accomplishments. We can see glory living vicariously through our children. We can see glory in all kinds of foolish and vain things. But there is one cure, one way to deflate our head and our hearts of the empty nothings of worldly glory to refill them, to inflate them with the all-consuming, weighty glory of the one who died. And with his blood purchased men for God, who even now intercedes on our behalf, the one who is returning, the true King of glory, who will reign forever and ever. Amen. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we see the fullness of your glory And we long for that day when we will be free of sin and vanity and blasphemy. We can be in the radiant presence of Jesus Christ. Sustain us until that day. Help us to live a people not for self-glory, but for the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.